who among us doesn't enjoy a good mystery? And especially when solving it means that I get to bring out my competitive side, even if it's just me against the clock, I just can't wait to uncover all the secrets. So June's Journey is a game that is completely up my alley, and I think you'll love it too. In June's Journey, a hidden object mystery game, you play as June Parker, who's on a quest to solve her sister's murder and uncover her family's many secrets. Each chapter brings you deeper into the story, and it's set in the Roaring Twenties, so beyond uncovering clues, you get to experience the glitz and glamour of the time. June's Journey is definitely not a game I play mindlessly, which I love because I get genuinely invested and a lot of it is a race against time, so there's a little fun added pressure of trying to find the clues as quickly as you can in each scene. There are also tons of ways to customize the island that you're on, learn more about the characters, and then new chapters are added weekly, so you really can't run out of things to explore. So if you think you're up to solve this case, download June's Journey for free today on iOS or Android or play on PC through Facebook games. June needs your help, detective. Hi, I'm Madigan from Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist, a podcast that explores the world through a personal, intersectional feminist perspective. Each Monday, I bring you a brand new full-length episode covering something from a wide variety of topics. And then every Friday, come meet up with me again for a mini What's in the News episode so you can stay up to date on everything that's going on in the world. Check out Your Angry Neighborhood Feminist wherever you get your podcasts. And Ray John. I mean, I see it with now dealing with contractors. And when I first moved, I remember I was talking on the phone to someone. They're like, you're going to have to bleed your boiler. Go ask your husband. (laughs) It's really easy. He can look it up on YouTube. I'm like, if it's really easy, why do I need my husband, my non-existent husband to do it? You know, you can't do YouTube on your own. I'm diking out, you're diking out. Let's dike out together. See what it's all about. Diking out, diking out, diking out, diking out. Welcome to Diking Out, a podcast hosted by a couple of dykes to watch out for. I'm Carolyn Bergier. I'm Melody Kamali, and today we're diking out with cartoonist, author, and come on, dyke on, Alison Bechtel. Guys. Wow, wow, wow. It finally arrived. This has been months in the making, and we are so excited. But first, make sure that you rate and review us five stars on Apple Podcasts so that people can catch this interview. Let's put it on their podcast, Gaydar, so they can hear us diking out with Alison Bechtel. Please do that. Yeah. What else? We have our cookout coming May 16th. Information is on our social media. There's an Eventbrite. You can register for free. There will be uh, food and beverages for sale there, and the proceeds of that are going to benefit local queer sports leagues to help pay for people who might not be able to afford it otherwise to be able to play in these leagues, which is awesome. I just want to know that you can bring your queers. It's okay if you don't identify as a dyke, right? Like, Oh, yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. This is an inclusive. I had a trans friend reach out to me and ask, and I was like, oh, my God. Yeah, oh. of course. Everyone's welcome. Every gender, every sexuality, it's just like a safe 
space for queers and allies, whatever, to to get together. Anybody who wants to be surrounded by the dyke energy, it's going to be dyke oh, energy. I mean, we've got a tarot card reader. We've got vegan hot dogs. We've got kickball. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty We've queer. got dyke beer. Like, <laughs> that's, you can't be put off by the dykes. That's the one. Yeah, that's pretty much it. That's the one requirement. You can't find that offensive person on Twitter. So, <laughs> so scram. What else? Oh, we just recorded our Patreon weekly off-topic episode. We talked about a little bit of behind the scenes on this interview. We talked about matching tattoos of a couple of celesbians mm-hmm. or celesbiqueers. We talked about new slang. We talked about the Elliot Page and Oprah interview. But more importantly, we talked about a mullet that I was rocking in 2012. And didn't realize it. And didn't realize it. Guys, I unknowingly had a mullet for a year and a half. You can go check it out on my Instagram. Wild. And you can listen to it on Patreon. And you can listen to me go in depth about that there. So you'll hear all that and more over on our Patreon, patreon.com slash dyking out. All right. All right. Come on, Carolyn. Come on. I'll get out with it. (laughs) What's the gayest thing you did this week? There are a lot of things that I could pick from, but the one that I'm going to start with is the one that you've been waiting for, Mm -hmm. is that I binged season seven of Real Housewives of New York. Interesting that you did that. Interesting that it took a lesbian to tell you to watch it, for you to watch it. Now I'm thinking you're biphobic, Carolyn. promise I'm not biphobic. Because I, a bisexual, have been begging you to watch this. No, no, no. It took a full lesbian to convince you. And maybe that most recent iTunes review we got is true. Maybe this podcast is (laughs) a, quote, lil biphobic. No, no, it has nothing to do with that. It's because Jess, our guest from last week's episode where she talked about Real Housewives and other shows, she's the marriage of our interests. Yes. So the fact that there's proof that somebody could be obsessed with Madonna and Rosie O'Donnell but also Bethany and Carol. And Rosie, the cousin of a housewife's. Yes. The two different Rosies. Then mm-hmm. I knew maybe I too could get into housewives. And you sure did. You know, no. What what did it for me was that you both gave me a starting point. And that's what I needed. It's very overwhelming. It is. There are a lot There's of shows lot. that I won't get into that people are like, oh, Please tell us your thoughts on this. I'm like, I don't even know where to start with that. That sounds exhausting. That's too time intensive. But this was like, watch New York season seven that will lead you to season 10, which is the best season of Housewives. I'm like, that is homework that I can accomplish. And I did it. (laughs) And I have to let everybody know that Melody was wrong in saying that the show (gasps) is so, so gay because it's so, so gay. Gay, 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 gay. It's so gay. Oh, my God. Like, I know. I know you told me. I know you told me, but you didn't shove it down okay, my throat because you're, I said this before. Your eyes would glaze over every time I brought it up. So I would just have to throw big keywords at you and hope that I could get through to you. Because you, I remember once you being like, all right, I've indulged you enough. <laughs> on the podcast. 
podcast. So I was like, she doesn't listen. I just have to start screaming gay. No, no. I get it. I totally get it now because since I started watching, all I want to do is talk to Melody about Housewives. And all I do is text. I've been texting you nonstop about Love it. Housewives. I'm obsessed with it. Cecilia, who was just like watching it in the wings. A fine artist, yeah. okay? A fine artist. She's Cecilia. Loves it. For whatever that's worth. <laughs> she also loves Everybody Loves Raymond, so let's not get oh, too okay. crazy. But, uh... Uh, let's edit that out. Just kidding. <laughs> no. She was just kind of watching in the background and then just like slowly sat down with me and now she is also very into it. But yeah, the premise of the show should really be like, it's a bunch of rich women who are trapped in the prison of heteronormativity and they do not realize that being queer is an option for them. And they think because at some point they were married to a man that they must be straight. They don't mm-hmm. realize that they are actually gay because they are in love with each other, in lust with each other. They are having sex dreams about each other and Mm -hmm. coming up with weird excuses for why they had said sex dream about each other. They have jealousy. Jealousy. Also dating disgusting men. I mean, Mm -hmm. we'll call them beards. (laughs) Yeah, they are. There's so many. It's like, if I was gay... You know, right. I do honestly think that some of them are bi and they just don't realize that that is an option for them. But there are a lot of statements like if I were gay, if I was a lesbian, oh, I wish I was gay. I wish I didn't have to. They came of age in the 80s. Yeah. I wish I didn't have to ever sleep with men again. I never want to have to do this sex act with a man again. Sleeping with men is disgusting. Like it's all like just. And then like getting really excited about the idea of maybe having sexual contact with each other with getting naked with each other and I thought it was gonna be like the way that you described it which you did describe it accurately I'm just pulling your chain but I thought it was just gonna be like a big slop fest and it like there's some sloppiness to it but then there's some like very real moments where they're just acting gay with you know the clearest of mind so Mm -hmm. sober and just yeah I said it on the episode but fierce attachments is what I'm going with and I'm so sorry to Vivian Gormick an author who's I think memoir is called Fierce Attachments. I know she doesn't want to be associated with the housewives, but that's Too the only way I can describe it. Bad. And yeah, that is probably the gayest thing I did this week, except for Melody, right before we started recording this. I think I got a touch gayer and that we were doing our stereo broadcast and we were talking about all things like paranormal and clairvoyance and psychics and tarot cards. And then somebody on stereo offered to try to be a medium. In the moment, we got a medium. He was like, Carolyn, I'm going to need you to go find a white candle. Which I did. And a picture of your grandmother. Let's fucking go. Yeah, I channeled my grandmother and we had a really just a very queer supportive you know, calling on my grandmother who I love so much. I'm loving stereo. Yeah, I got emotional. I was trying so hard not to get emotional and the mo- it wasn't anything crazy. It was just, it was more sweet than anything. It was just like a very sweet thing that the stranger on stereo who could hear how much I loved my grandmother as I talked about her and was like, I'm going to do this nice thing for a stranger 
And it was a beautiful moment. (laughs) There's, yeah, something very touching about this stereo. You can listen to it. So if you haven't signed up yet, you can go sign up for stereo. All the information is in the show notes and you can look at our past shows and it'll be the show from Friday, April 30th. And you will find that. And then you can hear what Juju has to say about my grandma and what how, how my grandma's doing. What about you, Melody? What's the gayest thing you did this week? I mean, aside from realizing, can't get over this, that I had a mullet for a year and a half and I somehow didn't know and no one told me, I'm going to have to say going to Stonewall. I went to Stonewall a couple of nights ago. So jealous. Well, it was supposed to be... Dykier. We were headed to the cubby hole, actually. Mm-hmm. And the line was down the block. It's just with COVID and we're still dealing with like a lot of restrictions. And I'm glad, but it's also very hard to get to a coveted spot yes. unless you get there early, stake out some real estate. It's just, you know, it was a like 80 degree day on Wednesday and everyone in New York had the same idea. So we did abandon the cubby hole. We'll make it there eventually. But we headed over to Stonewall. <laughs> it was one of the last places I went before the pandemic. So it was nice to for my first real indoor hang as a fully vaccinated person with a group of vaccinated people, queers. It was a great group of queers. Pascas Lindsay Bowling was there. Allie Pascas Alicia Brown was there. Um, yeah, we just had such a nice hang at Stonewall. There was this adorable girl there. She was 20, I think. She came up to us and asked if she could, quote, socialize with us. She was there alone and she had taken the train in from Binghamton University. Oh my gosh. She was about to graduate. You could tell she was all dressed up, but she was there alone. What was she dressed up? Like, paint the picture. You know, like a lot of Japanese street style, like the like high socks, like kind of like pleated skirt, like she was wearing cat ears. Okay. All right. And like a polo kind of schoolgirl outfit, but yeah, like yeah, platform yeah. sneakers. Like it had some edge. She had an awesome makeup, like cat eye, like great look. And Love we it. did, we were talking with her. We're like, yeah, join us. But this catty gay guy ran up to us, the server. Okay. He worked there. I feel like we can kind of talk about the caddy servers at Stonewall as diking out hosts who host a show there and right. do have to deal <laughs> with them sometimes. They're intense. Yeah. He was like, I need you to go back to your station. Like she had to go back to where she was seated at the bar by herself in between two plexiglass dividers. And she was just shouting at us from across the bar. Like, I feel so embarrassed now. We're like, don't, you're great. Aww. And I was like, oh, I got to tell her about the hangout on the 16th. Yeah. Before I knew it, she was gone. <sighs> Okay, so we're there. We have a couple drinks. Uh, A lot of bars are making you do a two-drink minimum. And maybe it's because I didn't eat as much. I had two tequila drinks, right? Feeling loose. We're on our way out, and who walks in but Leah Delaria? Of course. I would have thought she would have been at the cubbyhole. Me too. Maybe, you know. Too crowded. I feel like they would accommodate her, but it was very right. crowded and they were it was a mess. But yeah, <laughs> I was um buzzed enough to put my hand over my mouth and point right at her and scream whisper, that's Leah Delaria. That's Leah Delaria. <laughs> she heard me. Like there's no way she didn't hear me. And you didn't introduce yourself as the no. co-host of Diking Out? No. And we I mean we can't really say much but we will be hosting an event with her. Yeah. Soon. 
I, we can't say much more. But so I wanted to introduce myself. And be like, hey, listen, we're gonna be we're gonna meet you. This. Like, we'll be working together soon. Yeah. Nope. I I ran back in the bar because we were on our way out, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna do it. And then I chickened out at the last minute. I was like, I, I actually just need to use the bathroom <laughs> and pretended to use the bathroom, and then walked out again. Uh, we'll beat her. Yeah. <laughs> Formally soon. It'll happen. Yeah. But I feel like for my first trip out to Stonewall to see Leah Delaria, it was just such a thoroughly. That's the gayest thing. That's the gayest. Not going, seeing Leah Delaria at Stonewall. It's like nature is healing. That's the gayest thing of 2021. And now I'm going to be disappointed every time I go out and I don't see her there because she she (laughs) is single-handedly trying to save all the queer bars. So, you know, gay hats off to Leah Delaria for. Snap backs off being such a loyal patron of the west village all right well this episode only gets gayer from here so today we are diking out with cartoonist author daikon allison bechdel about superhuman strength which is a reference to her latest book the secret to superhuman strength i'm already feeling it are you, Melody? Are we both superhuman now? Coursing through my veins, Carolyn. Amazing. For those of you who are not familiar with Allison, she is most well known for writing and illustrating the graphic novel Fun Home, famously made into a musical, as well as writing the long-standing comic Dykes to Watch Out For, which was also compiled into another graphic novel, and then later the graphic novel Are You My Mother? Let's dive in. Allison, thank you so much for diking out with us today. We are so thrilled to have you here. I am so psyched to be diking out with you, Carolyn. Thank you. And Melody, thank you. This is big for us. Yeah, you're such a, a daikon, as we like to say. <laughs> I don't even know if our podcast could be called diking out if it wasn't for people like you with dikes to watch out for and having... <laughs> I mean, I I can't imagine back then the reaction to the name for it because I didn't know when starting the podcast how uncomfortable the name of this podcast would make people. I guess I was naive to that or I thought we had moved past that. But then now whenever people ask me, especially like in a working situation or I'm I'm freelancing and someone's like, oh, your podcast, what's the name of it? I'll, I'll take a listen, knowing that there's <laughs> no way this person's going to listen. And I'm like, Diking out. (laughs) (laughs) I am so heartened that that's the name of this podcast. I I love it. I feel like, you know, Dyke has kind of fallen out of favor over the years. So it's always nice to see it being used. So thank you. Yeah, I I think it's coming back. But did you have people who had like a lot of resistance to it back then or, or yeah. was that the was that like was there a heyday for dyke and then it became like the go-to insult and then now we're back to reclaiming it again i'm not sure about the whole arc i have to think about it more but definitely when i started using it in my early 20s in the 1980s all my friends used the word dyke that's how we thought of ourselves but older women people i would say <laughs> over 30 were much more likely to take umbrage at that they thought it was I don't know what they thought. You know, you know how old people are. <laughs> Over 30, older. Yeah. Good to know. <laughs> it's funny because now it, I mean, Melody, tell me if you agree. I feel like it's the younger 
queers. I was just going to bring this up. We actually have a lot of um, teenagers reaching out to us, taking offense to the name. Or if we have a guest who will like retweet a tweet of ours saying they did the podcast, they'll get a lot of replies. Because it's excluding people or why? I'm not... I can't keep up, man. Yeah, yeah. good luck. It's uh, it's hard. We're, we've been trying to keep up, and it's a different reason every time. You know, there's a lot of argument over who can use the word dyke. So some people bristle at that, like, you know, Melody identifies as bisexual, and some people think bisexuals can't use the word dyke. And then... Uh, I see. Some people are also like, well, that's an insult. Why would you use that? That word is triggering <laughs> for some people. And it's like, but we're using it in a positive way and we're embracing it. And it's still. It's cyclical. It's the circle yeah, of Dyke. It's apparently. Um, <laughs> I'm glad you're keeping the circle going. Yes. <laughs> Thank you. We'll go forth. Before we dive in, we have to know, Lord of the Dykes, what is the gayest thing you did this week? You know, I'm trying to think. I mean, I, I'm i so gay all the time. It would probably have something to do with lentils. Um. <laughs> that alone. That sentence alone. <laughs> lentils and flannel. I, I'm sorry. I, I'm very bad at coming up with like spur of the moment punchlines. <laughs> no, no. Those are both very gay things. Are those like regular parts of your life? The lentils? Are you a big cook? Lentils are a very regular part of my life and a very lesbian part of my life. I actually just recently got back to being a vegetarian. I was a vegetarian for most of my... That's my next question. Yes. <laughs> I don't know. For like starting when I was 20 until I was in my 40s. And then I started eating meat for a period, but just recently with the pandemic, I've like cleaned up my act, gone back to being a vegetarian. Is that because of what was happening in the factories and the people getting sick in the work conditions? Or was it just like, now's a good time to... Now's a good time to examine everything we've been overlooking. <laughs> yeah, it was the timing. And um, it was more my partner Holly's idea than mine. I was a little resistant, but no, I'm really glad we did it. Yeah. Partly it was, you know, it's easier to shop if you're not buying meat. I mean, meat's just really crazy. You have to be much more careful and deliberate. And so we just stocked up with a whole pantry full of beans. <laughs> Love it. Love it. My wife just yesterday said to me, I'm so glad you eat meat. So I don't think we're going vegetarian <laughs> anytime soon because we got it. We got a grill now that we live outside of the city and I've been grilling uh -huh. a lot and it's made her really happy, even though vegetables are delicious on the grill. But, you know, that's one of the sad things. We didn't grill at all last year because it's hardly worth the effort to grill a zucchini, you know, to get all that right fire going. <laughs> So before we get into the book, I want to ask your thoughts, and this goes back, I guess, kind of to the question before about the word dyke, but what are your thoughts on how the queer community has changed from when you were coming up in it, like, say, in, in your 20s, to what you're seeing now? Like you said, you're you're having a hard time keeping up. It, it feels like it's just changing at such a, a rapid pace. Yeah, I, you know, I don't even really feel like I have a clear sense of what the community is, who the community is right now. Um, it feels much more diffuse and ever evolving. I mean, it was all that's, it was always like that, you know, people were always 
defining themselves in different ways and identifying in, in different ways and using different language. And that's that's been around forever. But, you know, it was a much smaller community, I would say. It was, you know, so many more people are out now than were when I was young. That's the big and wonderful difference. Part of that process is you, you lose a sense of that cohesiveness. You know, it used to be like a sort of exclusive little club. <laughs> now it's right. Now it's much bigger and much more diverse, which is a great thing. Yeah. With people being so much more open about being out, like, did you ever think that it could be like this one day? Did you see that that's where things were headed? Or It's funny to try and think about what I imagined the future would look like. I certainly had no idea gay people would be able to get married. Like that still kind of blows my mind <laughs> that that yeah. happened. That was just not on my radar or on, I think, the radar of my whole little activist cohort back in the 80s. Like, you know, the gay and lesbian movement at that time just was a more radical movement. I mean, there were more conservative people who cared about things like marriage, but they were, I would say, in the minority. And then that balance tipped at some point and the movement moved much more toward these, you know, toward assimilation. Yeah, that's actually something I haven't thought about, how it used to be more radical and then it was more about us wanting to be included in these traditionally more conservative institutions like the military right, and marriage. <laughs> it's like, no, let us in there. <laughs> when for, for so long, we were partying on the outside of it being like, thank God we're not a part of that. <laughs> <laughs> I know. I mean, I feel like something has gotten lost and Certainly there's still people who are partying, you know, but that wild radical spirit, I feel like it's just not as prevalent as it once was. Yeah. But one thing remains the same, and that is the cubbyhole. And I know Carolyn's <laughs> ultimately trying to ask you about the cubbyhole because <laughs> there was a reference in your book to it. A and brief one. We, but, so yeah. brief, but so Narrowed it stuck it, out yeah. to us. And we want to know what the cubbyhole was like back in the day. <laughs> is, is it still in existence? I don't even know. It is. Wow. It is. Yeah. We are hosting a show there in a month, I think, right? Oh, yeah. Wow. Awesome. Well, you know, it was new back then. It was like in those days, there were not very many lesbian bars. I mean, there's <laughs> there are never very many lesbian bars, but like the only thing going on like in the village back then was the Duchess, the Duchess Club. And so it was kind of a more for older women and felt kind of scary. So when the cubbyhole opened, it felt like a, a younger crowd and like people more like me and I felt more comfortable there. It was on Hudson and I can't remember the cross street. Did it still have all of the decorations hanging from the ceiling back then? Like, was that always I don't remember thing? any ceiling decorations. What's hanging from the ceiling? Now it's like a lot of like paper lantern type things and oh. and tchotchkes i don't know but it makes it feel even tinier so you're already feeling like you're in this lesbian sardine can <laughs> and then they've dropped the ceiling down <laughs> no i don't remember that i remember there was just a small like dance floor and some tables and a bar i don't know i was so drunk during the time i spent there i don't have clear memories <laughs> so let's talk about the book <laughs> okay let's talk about your quest to superhuman strength 
it feels like you're there now after completing the book. You know, I hope I didn't give the impression that I've like solved all the problems of my life because I absolutely have not. <laughs> I did have a, a kind of moment of, as I was finishing the book last year, of feeling like things were coming together in a kind of a way, but I'm not done yet. How <laughs> yeah. long did you work on the book for? This book, I started... At the end of 2012, so it was a really long time, eight years from start to finish, which is a very long time for a book. Uh My books all seem to take me an inordinate amount of time. I don't know how novelists crank things out every two years. Part of it, I must say, in my own defense, is that I have to not only write, but draw the book. But even (laughs) even that doesn't account for this lengthy time period. What's your process when you're doing your books? Are you writing and drawing at the same time? Do you start with like an image in your mind or do you start by writing out the whole story? You know, I don't really know. I feel like I'm always trying to figure out my own process. I've eventually settled into a routine where I write in a drawing program. So I'm sitting on my computer and I'm typing, but I'm actually in Adobe Illustrator and I'm making panels on the page and I'm imagining what Mm. the drawings are going to be that accompany the words that I'm putting there. So it's a visual kind of writing, but I'm not actually drawing at that stage. But I will, you know, go find stuff on the internet and stick it in there as a placeholder. I might do a quick sketch for a page and slowly it starts to take shape as a story. But only when I have the story figured out, do I print that stuff out and start making drawings from it, like with a pencil Mm -hmm. and pen and paper. Gotcha. And it takes me a long time to get there because of my strange writing process. How did you decide to come to write about this and these themes in your life? I had just finished writing a memoir about my mother, which followed a memoir about my father. I have to keep like recreating my own life story for some reason. Now I'm even doing it in this podcast. But for many years, I wrote <laughs> Thanks to Watch Out For. I did that for like 25 years, this lesbian comic strip. Right. During the end of that period, I started also working on a memoir about my dad, about my childhood with my closeted gay dad called Fun Home. And that took me like seven years. And then I began work on a memoir about my mother called Are You My Mother, which took me another seven years to do. I had finished these kind of intense family memoirs, which were hard to write, which were kind of grueling. And I was always negotiating stuff with my family about the fact that I was doing this. And so I wanted to do something easier and lighter. And I thought the only real thing I had left to write about, in a way I had written about all my good stories already. So I had to think of something else I could write a memoir about. And I felt like the next most compelling thing to me in my life was exercise and these outdoor activities that I write about. It was like the one uncomplicated, unconflicted area of my life. So I guess I thought, well, why don't you write a long, arduous book about that? Like the one thing that makes you happy and you don't have to get all cerebral about. Why don't you get all cerebral about that? (laughs) I don't know why I do this, but that was kind of how it started. So before you had written the book, had you really not given too much thought about the, the role that this had played in your life? Honestly, no. It was just... You know, that was the one thing I didn't have to process or think too much about. It was just always this part of my life that was a refuge from everything else. Well, that's true of the different sports and exercise routines I did. But 
part of that for me, part of that whole process is just my general quest. And this might be the most lesbian thing about me is this, just this, this self-improvement thing, like wanting to, you know, I mean, I just finished working with my therapist after 19 years (laughs) and that's not even all the therapy I've done. Altogether, I spent about 30 years of my adult life in therapy just because I really want to be operating optimally, you know? I can relate, though. There were parts in the book where you were pushing yourself really hard with your exercises and like experiencing some burnout. I related to that quest and self-improvement, working myself to the bone, kind of taking a step back reevaluating, trying something else. You go through a lot of different exercises, I mean, through the book. Oh, and I was curious if what stuck. You try martial arts, biking, running, skiing. Is there any of those practices that you still incorporate? Um, Yeah, actually, a a lot of those things I still do. I mean, I still ski and bike because that's just what you do in Vermont. I still do yoga, not regularly, not intensively, but I have a little routine that I do whenever I can. I still lift weights. Well, I say that even though I haven't really lifted weights in a year because the pandemic shut my gym down, but I'm definitely going to get back on the weightlifting bandwagon. I feel like I I have incorporated many of these things into just my regular routine over the years. Do you think part of you know, there are a lot of lesbians who are really focused on like becoming stronger, getting that like physical strength. And is there this tie to wanting this freedom from having to depend on men? I mean, I've noticed like my wife and I, since moving, there are some things where I'm like, oh, there's no way that we can lift this couch and move it. But it's like, you know what? Let's try. I don't want to have to (laughs) bring in a man for that. Or I'm like, I'm going to chop my own wood. And there's something like very satisfying about that. Well, yeah, that I I don't really write about that super explicitly in the book, but that was very much going on when I was in my 20s, and especially when I was part of this feminist martial arts world. Um, yeah. This was a big scene in the 80s, was women's martial arts clubs. I had no idea about this. Really? Yeah, Yeah, same. Yeah. Fascinating to read. Tell our listeners a, a, <laughs> a little bit more about this, because okay. it's so interesting. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, this is sort of like what we were talking about earlier, just about how the you know, the the queer community has gotten so much bigger and has made so much progress. I feel like all the attitudes towards women's athletics and strength have also undergone a real sea change in these decades. I mean, I grew up being told that girls could not do push-ups. They could not throw. They could not run. I mean, people really said this stuff to, to girls and it really got in. You know, I've, I actually thought I couldn't do push-ups until I joined this women's karate club and and we started building our upper body strength. And I just, you know, you can do that if you want to do it. But it was, it was very much about learning to do stuff for yourself, learning to take back this power. I, I, it was like men were psyching women out, not only to make women less powerful, but to make themselves seem more powerful by comparison. It was very clear there was this mind game going on. So it's just been really cool to watch women's strength become a phenomenon over the past couple of decades. Like 
it's okay for women to be really powerful. Yeah. That was not okay. It was like shameful for women to have muscles. It was crazy. Right, right. And I feel like we still haven't gotten rid of all of that or or that's just so ingrained in the the patriarchy and the way that some men operate that there's just still this dismissing of what women are capable of. I mean, I see it with now dealing with contractors. And when I first moved, I remember I was talking on the phone to someone. They're like, you're going to have to bleed your boiler. Go ask your husband. (laughs) Oh, God. It's really easy. He can look it up on YouTube. I'm like, if it's really easy, why do I need my husband, my non-existent husband to do it? You know, you can't do YouTube on your own. Yeah. And it's just like it's a little bit of a, a shock moving out of the bubble of New York City and then all of a sudden being treated like a woman again, I guess. That's funny. I feel like that stuff has gotten better, too. I mean, I don't yeah. know. It also changes as you age. Like maybe people also could hear your age and your voice. If they heard me on the phone, they'd just tell me to go look it up on YouTube. (laughs) (laughs) It's funny. It's really cool to me getting treated with a certain measure of respect. I feel like I've entered this short little window before I get too old and people start dismissing me again. But it's been kind of cool. I think around the time I turned 50, I started getting treated better by people in the world. I'm looking forward to that. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, who's ready for a true story? When I entered my MFA program this fall, I knew I was going to have so little time for cooking. So I wanted a solution that would let me have tasty, healthy meals in a flash so that after class, I could still have time and energy to be gay. So I signed up for Factor, which ships you ready to eat meals that are chef created and dietitian approved. They're fresh, never frozen, so all you have to do is stick them in the microwave for two minutes, and then they're nice and done. Um, The weekly menu has over 35 options. The salmon entrees are always my personal favorite, but they have um, a lot of things you can choose from, options for different dietary needs like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. They also have add-ons for when you don't need an entire meal. Um, I tried some good cookies and some jerky. Uh, No prep, no mess, and And when I looked into it financially, which was one of my main concerns, it was actually less expensive than uh, takeout and honestly, really close to the cost of buying ingredients at the grocery store down my block in New York City. Uh, And then I saved a lot of time. So to me, it was definitely worth it. Did I mention that the meals are also really delicious? Like I've yet to try one that I didn't like. So if that sounds good to you, I think you should give it a try too. Head to factormeals.com slash dykingout50 and use code dykingout50 to get 50% off. That's code dykingout50 at factormeals.com slash dykingout50 to get 50% off. During Women's History Month, come explore what feminism means to you with nonfiction storytelling podcast, Thread the Needle. I'm your host, Donna Schill. I'll use my background in journalism to dive into topics that matter to women today. Listen to Thread the Needle wherever you get your podcasts. Uh, so with the with the women's martial arts movement, did you find that there was a, a disproportionate amount of those women who were, were queer? Yes. Or was it a lot of straights too? There, there were many straight women, but d- yeah, it was, there were more lesbians than you would find in the general population. Right. And it was, it was kind of a scene, I think. I mean, I certainly went there to meet other women, so I'm yeah. sure other, <laughs> other lesbians were doing that as well. But that was a, 
Really wonderful experience. I did that quite intensely for several years in my early 20s. I, I trained until I got my black belt and kept going a little bit after that until I moved out of New York City and left my teacher. But all the time I was in New York in my 20s, I was studying martial arts. I love that because martial arts feels like something that your parents sign you up for when you're a kid. And that's that's your window to do it. And if you miss that window, then you just have to settle for like kickboxing classes at the gym or something like that. But I remember my parents kind of like balked at the prices of taekwondo lessons and they're like uh-huh. we're just gonna sign you up for softball i'm like same <laughs> i really want to do martial arts so i've always wanted to do it because of that and i dated a girl in my 20s who did aikido and i thought that was the hottest thing i don't oh, know like, aikido is amazing yeah i love aikido because it was a purely defensive practice in karate you learn lots of attacks but aikido is much more nonviolent, and it's yeah you know, philosophy, and you only do these moves to defend yourself. Yeah, it seems very zen. Plus, they wear those cool, those uniforms with those cool black pants. Yes. (laughs) That's why it's hot to me. (laughs) (laughs) I had a quick question. You do incorporate a lot of authors in your book, too, and weave in a lot of their philosophies around nature and Finding their sense of self, you write a lot about Jack Kerouac, and I wanted to know, do I have to read him? (laughs) (laughs) I know. Now that Alison Bechtel's (laughs) talking about Jack Kerouac, I think I finally have to read On the Road. I had that same reaction you write about where I was like, what a fucking asshole, Like, and just like put it off. But then after reading all your references to him, like, okay, I really... Do want to read no, this now? You don't. You don't have to read him. Okay, just great. Just read I read you, what you said about it. Yeah, that's enough. <laughs> I, honestly, I have read very little of Kerouac. I just really love his book, The Dharma Bones, which I talk about in my book. But yeah, most of his stuff I find pretty indigestible. Yeah, yeah. I know it seems strange for like a middle-aged lesbian to be writing about Jack Kerouac, but there was something I I came to relate to in him. You know, he just seemed like this drunk jerk to me at first. And this, you know, this arrogant prick who just used women in his life and didn't respect them and didn't respect women artists, which is all true, but (laughs) he he was dealing with a lot, let's just say. And it was interesting to sort of learn a little bit about what was going on psychologically for him. He had a terrible loss well, it doesn't matter. I don't even talk about this in the book, but he he had his issues. But I was interested in the way that Kerouac just kind of self-destructed, you know? Right. Just really, he literally drank himself to death at a point when he was finally getting recognition for his work, which was kind of interesting to me. I mean, he'd been drinking all along, but it kind of got worse once On the Road was published and he really became this sort of notorious public figure. And that interested me. Like, what makes people self-destruct when they get the thing they want? Right. There was a word you'd use that I'm blanking on for that phenomenon. Oh, yes. Um, Freud wrote about about people who became wrecked by success. I mean, I'm sure he... That was it. Yes, yes, yes. He probably had a German word for it, but I don't know the German. Right. (laughs) But yeah, he would argue that some people, when they get the very thing they want, would find ways to sabotage it. And I identified with that. Like, I could see Kerouac not being able to free himself from those forces. And I feel like I struggled really hard. For me, it was my family. I think for for Kerouac too, he was really, he just had this very enmeshed relationship with his mother, 
where he just couldn't ever break free of her. You know, he was very intimidated by her. He, you know, he would be very mean to her too, but he just couldn't like break free and have his own self outside of her. He lived with her until he was, you know, mo- most of his life, he, he would always come back to his mother. So I feel like I, I too had a certain degree of psychological difficulty in my relationship with my mother, but I, I worked really quite deliberately at breaking free of the the ways I felt like she was inhibiting me. Both of my parents, I feel, were quite creatively overpowering. I felt very intimidated. They were school teachers, but they mm-hmm. loved art and drama and music and literature. They were very much, you know, connoisseurs of all these things. And so my way of rebelling against them was to reject all that stuff, that world of fine art and literary writing. But really, I wanted to do that kind of thing. I was, I was an artist. I was a writer. And I, I wanted to do that stuff. But I, I was afraid of competing with my parents. I was afraid of their judgment. I was afraid of trying to do something and have them criticize it. And, and they would do that. You know, there were periods in my life when I would have to fight against this inhibiting force of them wanting to do things a certain way or they didn't like something I'd written. So uh, the thing I did to break free of all that was to actually write this book about my family. I wrote this book about how my father was this closeted gay man as I was growing up and how at the point when I finally came out to my parents when I was in college, told them I was a lesbian, I found out about this. My mother told me about my dad, which I'd had no idea about. Then my coming out sort of precipitated this weird family crisis where my mother finally realized she didn't want to go on in this relationship. And she asked my dad for a divorce. And soon after that, within a few months of when I came out to my family, my father was dead. He stepped in front of a truck and my mom was pretty sure he had done that intentionally. Sorry, it's hard for me to do, <laughs> it's hard for me to talk about my life at all without going back to this trauma. I'm sorry. I know it's like, oh my God, give us a break. But <laughs> no, I mean that's what's so interesting about the book, the way that you weave in all the different parts of your life and all these different themes that kind of play into both our like sense of self and then our quest for always trying to like change or improve in in some way or or working on ourselves and the work we have to do on ourselves. And do you feel like, like there's a point of diminishing returns when it comes to that quest for self-improvement? That's a good question, perhaps to a certain extent, but I feel like sort of the nature of life, if your life is anything like mine, (laughs) is that Whatever your thing is, whatever your problems or issues are, will just keep coming up. They just keep getting served up to you on a silver platter until you make progress with them. So the more progress you make, yes, the less they will come around again. But I do feel like life finds a way to just present yourself with the same circumstances that are going to trigger you and cause problems until you learn how to do it. The act of telling that story was actually very freeing. Mm. And it entailed really like standing up to my, well, my father was dead, so I wasn't really standing up to him, but I was kind of standing up to this imagined authority of my mother, like not wanting me to reveal these family secrets. And I didn't just willy nilly go out in the world and reveal these secrets. I worked with her to make that okay with her. 
but it was still like a kind of profound psychic struggle to do that, to really say, mom, I don't care what you think. Mom, I'm going to do something that I know is going to hurt you. Like that is really hard to do. And that was the kind of thing Jack Kerouac couldn't bring himself to do. But I had lots of therapy to help me. Yeah. I've had like a dark thought in my mind. Like I went to school for creative nonfiction writing. I like writing like essays. And I remember thinking in college, like I could never put out a memoir or anything like about my life until my parents die. Like that, right. I just have to wait until they're dead because I don't want to shame them or, you know, disappoint them or tell their secrets. Like that's definitely a struggle. I think like a lot of artists deal with. Yeah. I should get in therapy again. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe, Melody, maybe you're just a, a nicer person than I am. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah, it's just a guilty conscience, a permanent guilty conscience. <laughs> yeah, that is a, a hard thing to do. I mean, Melody and I, we, we both do stand-up comedy, and, and stand-up comedy gives you a little bit of a space to, like, dip your toes into that because you can perform on a show talk about some really personal stuff and know my mom's never going to hear this. You know, if I'm not doing it for like a film special, like this night on this stage is a safe space for me to talk about this dirty laundry that uh -huh. I'm supposed to be quiet about, but need to talk about, need to <laughs> process it, you know? And of course, it's like creative people love processing stuff for public consumption, it feels. Well, you know, I feel like that that's true of me too. And, and that's, that's why I became a cartoonist in a way is because it was this art form that my, you know, very highly aestheticized parents didn't recognize, didn't really see as art. So it was a way mm -hmm. I could go out and talk about, certainly about being a lesbian and they wouldn't see it, you know? Yeah. Yeah. They couldn't even process it. It was like, like a dog whistle they couldn't hear. Or something. I can't. I'm very bad at metaphors. I, I should stop trying to make them. <laughs> there are some good ones in the book. I have time to think when I'm writing stuff down. I'm very bad at. You know, I'm not good at conversation. I find this whole podcast world quite intimidating. Like just talking, talking, talking. Yeah, Zoom makes it like a whole puts it in a whole new obstacle. But yeah, going back to all the, the different workouts and fitness activities and stuff, you have accomplished so many physical feats that I find personally like very impressive. Like the most I've ever run is a 10K and, and I don't know if I'll get there again, like with the work it took for me to even get to that point. Of the things you've accomplished, like physically, what's been the most surprising and what's been the most rewarding? Well, can I just, I want to take a slight detour and say something else first, which is that I just, I made a post somewhere on social media about this book recently. And a woman wrote back saying, you know, I'm an exercise phobe and a fat person. And I don't think this is the book for me. And I felt really bad about that because I don't want to, you know, I hate that whole aspect of fitness culture that it excludes fat people, excludes people with, you know, disabilities. This book, even though I, people can be forgiven for thinking my book is like that, given the title, The Secret to Superhuman Strength, but it's really not a book about the superhuman strength. It's about the opposite of that. It's really, in the end, about how vulnerable we all are, how much we need other people. It's not about these feats of strength, you know, even though I do, right. it's true, I, I kind of go on about my feats of strength. So, But I just wanted to make that little disclaimer. I don't feel like the book is really 
about how we need to be superhumanly strong. Oh, for sure. And and anyone who reads it, that comes through immediately, that this is not something that's trying to indoctrinate you into a different lifestyle. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I'm so, I'm so not evangelizing for exercise. It's my thing. For me, exercise is a way to this mental state that I really crave. And people can, I know, get there in all different kinds of ways. For me, it just happens to be exercise. Of all these things, I think the most transcendent experience of exertion I ever had was when I was studying karate and I would do this thing called winter training. Every year for a week in the spring, the karate school would have extra rigorous classes, one in the morning at 6 a.m., one in the evening at 6 p.m. And this was actually not at my women's school, but at a big mixed dojo with a lot of people in it. To do that routine for a week was so intense. Like you would just get so exhausted. I know it doesn't sound like much an hour in the morning, an hour in the evening, but they were really tough classes. Yeah, it sounds like a lot to me. <laughs> and you had to go about your life in the middle of it. Right. And by the end of that week, I felt really in a completely altered state. Like all the details of everyday life fell away. I had been training so hard that I was just in this kind of state of grace, which was really, really a lovely feeling. And how long does that last for? About a day. Yeah. <laughs> about, as, about as long as a psilocybin <laughs> high, <laughs> which is very similar. Okay. Right. That, that was the part that spoke to me. I was Sold. like, oh, okay. So are there other ways to get the, to this feeling that doesn't involve me contacting shady people? Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I tried it a few times, but only that one time did it really have any kind of effect like mm -hmm. like really good effect. The other times were kind of busts. But this time was amazing. It was one afternoon in the summer when I was 20. My girlfriend and I ate these mushrooms and went to the planetarium. And then we went to Central Park. And we just sat in Central Park all day. And it was a mystical experience. I haven't read a lot of the... There's a lot of literature out recently about psilocybin, which I haven't read. But I know from my own experience that it was it was really a transformative moment for me. I really felt like I could see something that was really true <laughs> about reality that I'm quoting from William James's Varieties of Religious Experience in which he lists all the qualities that a, my a technically mystical experience must have. And one of them is it's something you can't put into words. And I find it very hard to describe this feeling. And another mm -hmm. aspect of it is you, you come away from it with a feeling that it was something real, it, something persists in you that, yes. that you've really learned something. And so that definitely happened for me after that trip in my 20s. And what was that thing? <laughs> I, I can't tell you. You know, it, it, was, it, was, it was very much an experience of union and oneness with everything around me, but also this very clear realization that myself, this person who I'm just so consumed with constantly, this person that I am, whatever that means, is not really real. I know I'm really like here, but that I, I don't necessarily start and stop where I think I do, you know, that, yeah, I don't know, this is the kind of thing like you can't, it just sounds like crazy when you're trying to talk about it in the real world. Right, right. I know I asked about it, but I'm thinking about my experiences with it. And I'm like, yeah, I can't describe it. Yeah. For me, it was really a, a kind of bliss. And I wanted to get it back. I wanted to find yeah. another way. I knew I couldn't just like keep 
taking mushrooms every day. Right. Um, so I started learning about meditation. Theoretically, you could get there through meditation. I've tried that. It hasn't worked out so well. I just don't have the patience to sit still, I think. Okay. That was my big question for you. I right. thought you were a meditator. Yeah. You mentioned trying um, transcendental meditation, and that's something that with so many creative people and successful creative people, even like Jerry Seinfeld, like they, they swear by it. And I'm like, is that like the secret sauce? Is that what, you, what it takes to be able to get like that clear, to get in that, that zone and get into the flow is having that, that practice? I think for a lot of people it is. I, w- I really wish I could be more disciplined about it. But yeah, it's been very elusive for me. I still try. I still try to meditate. I mean, I should, I suppose I actually do meditate. I'm just not doing it every day. Yeah, right. I just finished a 21 days of meditation beginners workshop and I was proud of myself for doing it. But then like the next day, it's because I was a part of a WhatsApp group that had to keep you accountable every day and you get kicked out of the group if you don't report back that you did that journal exercise of the day and that meditation practice. So like that accountability kept me there for 21 days. And then sure enough, day 22, I forgot. I just didn't do it. But I also felt like it was hard for me to quiet thoughts. And I actually had a panic attack once at a meditation class. So it's a huge mystery to me, but it does feel like that special sauce. Every time I find out, I'm constantly finding out a hero of mine is a big meditator. (laughs) I think maybe that's why it feels like the special sauce. Well, (laughs) I think we should all do it. Yeah. You know, I, I do think it's, it's a really good thing. And whatever the reasons are that you're resisting it, are worth <laughs> worth looking at. Yeah, right. something's there. <laughs> I, I feel like for me, it's the sitting still part. I just want to move, but what, what? Why do I need to move? What am I, you know, trying to escape? What am I afraid of? Right. That's mentioned in your book, where one of your partner asks you because it it's like you're constantly going, you're constantly, you know, if you're not doing something physical, you're staying up all night working, and they they ask you like, what will happen if you take a break? And I know that that's something that I struggle with to this day. That my wife is always like, you can't keep up this pace. <laughs> Why are you doing this? And my therapist too. She's like, what are you afraid of? What's going to happen? I'm like, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, yeah, when my partner at that time posed that question, I I really tried to go there. And my answer was, I would feel like if I weren't pushing myself in this crazy way, I would feel like I didn't deserve to exist, that I somehow had to be superhuman in order to merit, you know, anybody's love or attention. So that's part of my root. <laughs> Is that from capitalism, <laughs> from growing up in, in, in the, the U.S.? Because you talk a lot about like Buddhism and these different teachings and practices, and that seems to kind of go against that philosophy, right? Yes. You know, I don't really know enough about Buddhism to talk about it with any kind of intelligence. <laughs> so You're in good company. Maybe I'll just stay off of that. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I'm very attracted to it. You know, I, I I have studied to a certain extent, but I don't. I'm still like very much a student, and I don't really know how to talk about these things. Right. Well, I'll say one thing. One of the, the thing that I think is most entrancing to me about Buddhism is the notion that we're all 
already enlightened, you know, that we already have Buddha mind in us. And it's just a matter of like unlearning all our negative behaviors. That's really compelling, you know, to think that you already have a thing. And I, I feel like in a way that's also the big arc of this book is my own efforts to get back to the kind of beginner's mind I had as a child when I was able to just inhabit my own creativity with such joy and ease. And that has become so much more difficult, you know, as you get older and more, you know, as yourself gets more and more calcified, it's harder to access that feeling of just of, of flow that children kind of live in. So I feel like it's in there. I just, it's my whole life since childhood has been a process of trying to get back there to strip away all the things on top of it that are in the way, all these impediments that are in the way. Right. Yeah. It's like dried paint and you're trying to, <laughs> trying to do analogy. <laughs> That's good. Like layers and layers. My yeah. yeah. I mean, that kind of makes me think going back to mushrooms, like one of the, the things about mushrooms that was a takeaway for me or that was comforting was, you know, when I was on it, I was like, this, this feels so good. I'm afraid or like I'm getting anxious about the trip ending and not being able to see these things anymore. And then I was like, wait, this is always there. And that was something I took away. I'm like, this is always there. It's just so that we can function in life. Our brain doesn't allow us to always be in tune with that or else we we would all die if we were always (laughs) in that state. We would die of starvation because we'd be like trancing out in the park. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, nothing would get done, whatever. So but it's like, it's so comforting for me to know what I think like the trees really look like, or (laughs) what? Yeah, how the grass really moves. And I have that knowledge. And I know it's there. And I know that there's like a way to to tap into it. But that's like something that you should only do very occasionally and safely. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, I, I love that that idea that it's there, you just have to find the way to be able to see it to be able to get in touch with it. Yeah. And I think I I would like to have more access to that. I don't need to be there all the time, but I would like to be able to do it more easily or more reliably. And that, that means really, really quieting your life down. You know, you can't be pushing yourself full tilt and expect to be able to see, you know, that level of reality. It just won't manifest. How do you feel about social media and the role that social media has played in terms of how it affects people and their self-worth? God, you know, I've I kind of got into the whole social media thing back when it was starting. I had a blog and I it was such a dopamine rush to get people to like engage with my comments and say flattering things to me. I really get it. And that was yeah. even before that was like before Facebook, certainly before Instagram or these other newer things. And I, I was quite seduced by it all. I really spent a fair amount of time, like 2005 to 2010, say, blogging and being part of that scene. But I really got burnt out on it. Because I'm an author, I have to like promote myself on social media. So I've right. been making an effort recently to go back on and to not just go back on to say, buy my book, but to really make an effort and really like share stuff about my life. And so I've been doing that again and it feels kind of onerous, but also kind of fun. Like it's a really great way of connecting with people. I, I, I get that. It's, 
kind of amazing. Yeah. So I have very mixed feelings about it. I do think it's doing something to our egos that's really bad. You know, people are way too focused on their own selves. And I hate that about my own self, you know, like how many likes did I get? It's crazy. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, just reading the book and thinking about the journey you're going on and the process throughout it and at these different stages, and then thinking about the role that social media plays now and how much that can maybe distract from getting to those those other thoughts or, or really digging. I don't know. I mean, I, I know that it's changing our brains. Literally. You know, the way that we're relating to our, mm-hmm. our screens and stuff. I don't understand all the neuropsychology of it, but it's really happening. And it's it's not just our attention. I really feel like there's something about our, our very sense of self that is getting altered in a bad way or getting reinforced in a bad way. Yeah. That's why we need to all spend more time in nature. Yeah. In the mountains. <laughs> I know that's corny, but it's true. No, no, I think it's totally no, true. It's, I mean, this last year showed that it's yeah. a very real instinct for people. Yeah, so many people flocked. I mean, even where I moved to, the neighbor just said, because I, I live right by a lake, and my neighbor said the lake had never been so busy as it was last summer during the, the pandemic, because people were just coming from everywhere trying to find... <laughs> Yeah. Something real to connect with. Yeah. All these people started showing up on my remote dirt road to walk and go bouldering. Like no one came here before that. Right. 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 <laughs> well, I know we should probably wrap up. Well, I feel kind of like I've been tripping or something. I can't believe this whole hour and 15 minutes is over. <laughs> <laughs> the book comes out May 4th. Where is the best place to buy the book? From your local independent women's bookstore, if you have one. Yay. (laughs) Yes. And also, I read that Fun Home is being made into a film. It's Yeah, it's true. The the musical of Fun Home, my my book got turned into a Broadway musical. And now that musical is going to be turned into a movie. That news was sort of prematurely leaked. It's not really actually happening yet, but... It will happen at some point. Okay. And, and it, Jake Gyllenhaal will be my dad. Yes. Really? That's what I read. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> wow. That's pretty yeah. cool, I think. Yeah. Anything else you want to tell our listeners about, you know, the secret to superhuman strength? Um, I'll say one more thing, which was that for, for me as a little kid, the secret to superhuman strength seemed to be this kind of self-sufficiency. Did we talk about the muscle man ads in the comics? No. Can't even, oh no. Okay, that's what that that's what the title comes from. Like right. I saw an ad in the comic book promising me the secret to superhuman strength and I thought, "Great, here's my dollar. Please send that to me." And of <laughs> course, it was not <laughs> actually the secret. It was like this crazy manual I couldn't understand. But Go figure. I love the idea of being just completely self-sufficient, like powerful enough that I didn't need anyone else. And as I got older, it turned from less of a physical fantasy about being physically strong to being like emotionally, you know, not needing other people. Of course, all of that is a fantasy. It's not real. And I've spent a lot of time in my life trying to unlearn that, trying to really embrace my weakness, <laughs> my <laughs> my dependence, my vulnerability, because I think that is the real secret to superhuman strength is being in touch with those things. Yes. Not being, you know impenetrable. Love it. 
Well, I hope all of our listeners read the book. I loved it so much. I enjoyed it. Enjoy all your work. Allison, thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks so much, you two. This was great. All right, I better close out Patagonia on my browser because we have a listener question to get to after that conversation. I just got to right. buy all the gear. Yeah, I'll even, stop. Though, even though she said that's not what superhuman strength is about, I still think that I need to get cross country skiing. Whether or not so. it was her intent with the book, I'm ready to hike. I'm ready to bike. I'm ready to run. Let's ready do it. Ready to get punched yeah. in the face. Very motivating book. <laughs> Well, speaking of motivating, hopefully we can motivate this listener. I hope so. With this listener question. This is a doozy. It's a doozy of a question. So I am a 26-year-old woman who is married to a man. We've been together 10 and a half years, married for nine months. I thought he was my person until this past year when I drunkenly confessed my feelings for my best friend. Feelings I didn't realize I had? Since that night, I've told my husband, and he gave me the freedom to explore these feelings with my friend, who feels the same as me. However, I am starting to think that I, obviously, am not straight. But I don't feel bisexual either. I think I'm a lesbian. I've never felt the way I have felt with a woman when I was with a man. It feels like something I didn't know I was missing. I am so afraid to come to this realization because that means my life and my husband's life will get completely flipped upside down. Any advice or encouraging words on coming out and telling my husband? I feel so alone in this and I feel guilty and like a bad person for not realizing this about myself before literally marrying the man I'm with. Okay, this is where I want you to go to YouTube.com and search for Shia LaBeouf. Do it. Do it! (laughs) Just do Do it! it! You gotta do it. You gotta do it. You have to do it. And let me tell you, first... Do not feel bad at all. You shouldn't feel guilty or bad. It's a journey for everybody. You are not alone. This happens to a lot of people. I'm doing the math here. You're 26 now. You've been with this person for 10 and a half years. You were a teenager. You're a very different person now than you were 10 and a half years ago. And, you know, going into that marriage, like these things happen and there are no guarantees when you get married. And yes, are your lives both can be flipped upside down absolutely in the best way possible though what if your life is upside down already and you're just gonna flip it (gasps) right side up finally how about that Ooh, what if you're adjusting it in alignment also you've been together 10 and a half years but you've been married for nine months did you potentially put off this marriage knowing this I do know a lot of people who were high school sweethearts and then they waited like eight or nine years because it's hard if that's like the only relationship you've been in. There's always part of your mind that I feel like slows these couples down. Like some do get married soon, but some are like, should I be with this person? I haven't been with anyone else. And like that doubt of wanting to explore and stuff can drag out wanting to make a commitment. And then at some point you're together for so long that you're like, yeah, now I can't imagine my life without you because I've been with you for this long and you're all I know. And so sometimes it works, but this is a situation where it's in no way is it going to work, especially now that you know this and you are doing him a favor and it's going to be 
painful and it's going to be sad and it's going to be hard because breakups, even when you're supposed to have them, are all of those things. And that's okay because that's where you'll be able to start to heal and rebuild and get to know yourself. And the faster you do this, the sooner he gets to heal and move on with his life and find somebody who is going to feel the way with him that you feel currently with this other woman, you know, or more, because this is just your first experience with a woman. So who knows what else is out there for you? But I'm so glad that you wrote in and share this. I, I think you sounds like you know what you have to do, but it is scary. But don't waste any time. You're not going to gain anything by putting this off any further. And it's going to be hard for him. But, you know, he's a big boy. He'll understand and he'll realize that he'll be better off for yeah, that. Yeah, don't put it off any longer. He's still, I mean, while you're both in your mid-20s, do it now. <laughs> you know? Do it now. You have plenty of time. I mean, you know, 26 was how old I was when I first got married. And my life has changed drastically since then. And it's a great time to make a change. And yeah, get, get rid of that guilt, though. You didn't know. It's not like you duped him or anything. I know, you know, if... For the same reason, I wouldn't want to be married to a straight person. He wouldn't want to be married to right. someone who who's gay. And, you know, maybe you're saying that you think you're a lesbian. Like, don't even feel any pressure on that front now. Just know that this marriage probably is not right for you. And you have this whole other part of your life opening up that you should pursue because that seems to be a lot closer to your authentic self. And all that stuff that you didn't realize you you were missing, that's that's going to be a, a big part of your life. And now that you know it's there, you can't deny it. You can't hide it and live your truth. Live your truth, baby. But also be single. Yeah. Like, I'm kind of a little concerned about, say, this listener does break things off with their husband and then immediately gets together with their best friend. Like, I I think you need to be single and get to know yourself. For sure. For sure. That's good advice to heat as well. If it's meant to be with this great friend of yours, they should be understanding and give you that time and that space. And then maybe you can revisit. They should understand that you haven't been single since you were 15. (laughs) It's necessary. The connection between two women, especially with like the first woman you're with, it's going to be real. It's going to be intense. It's going to be strong. And you're going to think because it's so different than what you experienced with your husband, you're going to be like, well, maybe this is my soulmate pause because if it really is then if you guys take some time apart for a while if it's meant to be neither of you will find anyone who's as good as the other and then you can re-engage knowing that that's true Mm -hmm. or you find other people who make you even happier and your friendship remains intact (laughs) yes yes don't get into something fiery and messy now this is a time for you to focus on you this is a huge thing in your life don't feel any guilt though don't feel any shame I mean I know even when I got just like a normal divorce there's a lot of shame of like oh I just had this wedding and all these people came and and this and that and that can who cares none of that matters None of that matters. Do the it. thing that matters is you watching that Shia LaBeouf video. <laughs> Do it. 
do it. Wishing you the best. This is terrifying and exciting, and you've got this. You can do this. Tear the Band-Aid off. Do it. Do it. If you have a question or a husband you're looking to leave, you can email us, <laughs> tykingout at gmail.com, and we will answer your question at the end of an episode. If you're a patron, let us know, and we will put that question to the top of the queue. You can follow us on social media at Diking Out and at Diking Out Podcast on TikTok. <laughs> I almost forgot. I've, I'm What's like that slowly app called? all the kids are on. Uh, I'm yeah. blocking TikTok out of my brain because it stresses me out so much. You can follow me at TGI Carolyn. You can follow me at Melody Kamali. And we will see, see you, you next, next Tuesday. Tuesday. In a world saturated with glossy facades comes a podcast that's breaking barriers. This is Reppin. It's where we do a deep dive into subjects like belonging, to mental health, to courage, and more. On Reppin, you'll meet the faces you think you know and discover their untold stories. It's real, it's intimate, and it gives you insight into the real person behind the images. In a world of pretense, Reppin strips it all down. No filters, no facades. Learn and be empowered and find inspiration through thought-provoking stories that resonate with your journey. Every episode is an exploration into the truths and values that make us who we are. Representation, it's not just about race or gender. It's about you. Reppin ensures that every voice is heard. Every story is valued. So be seen, be heard, and be represented. Listen to Reppin wherever you get your podcasts.